Welcome to Bloodbath, a true crime podcast. I'm Ashley. And I'm Jamie. Wait, Ash, did you just say true crime? I did. So if I'm easily creeped out or offended, then this probably isn't the podcast for me? Give it a try. So Do if something I'm, new. <laughs> but if I'm easily <laughs> triggered by like graphic murder, suicide, necrophilia, I should probably stop listening like right now. Sit this one out, or I'll give you a warning to skip five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> well, consider that your blanket trigger warning. You're about to listen to a true crime podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. It's time for the show. Sorry about that. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) You okay there? I just want to tell you my story really quick from working this morning in the window at Starbucks. Okay. A guy comes through and he's in a minivan. Okay. Mm. And I'm kind of looking around because I can see what I think is like a giant cage in the back. Uh Uh-uh. Like. No. Mm -mm. Like, no, like undercover. So then I start looking around a little bit more and I can see like a rifle looking gun. I don't know my guns, but like a gun gun. Right. I see the clothing he's wearing and then I see the camera and I go, sir, are you undercover? (laughs) (laughs) He goes, shh, don't tell anyone. It's like, yes. And I'm talking to true crime. He loves small town murder. Yes. And then I wrote down our podcast and i was like we really want to start implementing uh like law enforcement like actually doing interviews where we just sit down and talk to shit like literally it's it's not serious in any sense for like what they are doing for like what they can tell but we just like chat and he was like yeah and he goes i think i heard of bloodbath and i was like hmm (laughs) so he thinks he heard of us but so that's cool and then i let him know like who else we'll be doing an episode with eventually mm-hmm. <laughs> with a certain Netflix documentary. Uh, yeah. So he was like, so dope. And yeah, it was really fun, but let's get into the case. Okay. Yeah. That's really cool that that <laughs> happened. And then we're going to get into this heavily, heavily trigger warning case. <laughs> yeah. It's not going to be for a minute, like the actual murder, so to say, but she graphic, she very graphic. So, October 17th, 2006. Interesting Zach date. Zach Bowen jumped. Shut up. I wasn't going to mention that it's my anniversary. I wasn't going to make it about me. Thanks a lot, Jamie. You're welcome. <laughs> it's also my grandma's birthday. Um, anyway, Jamie. <laughs> Zach Bowen jumped to his death from the seventh floor of the Omni Royal Hotel in New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. I mean. I probably do. I'll probably say both. <laughs> Let's be honest. You should you should try to go with New Orleans. New Orleans? If you're from there, you just say New Orleans. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. <laughs> Inside his back pocket, he had a handwritten note in his army tags inside a plastic bag. So inside a plastic bag are his suicide note and army tags. And then in the front pocket was a key to Addie Hall's, his girlfriend's, apartment. The letter was labeled police only. 
They read it in disbelief and then went to the address listed, 826 North Rampart Street, New Orleans, above Priestess Miriam's Voodoo Spiritual Temple. They soon found out that the shocking details that were in this letter were all true. Oh, no. But let's start from the beginning. The very beginning. <laughs> Zachary Bowen was born May 15, 1978 in Bakersfield, California. He was said to be charismatic, charming, and good-looking, who always left an impression on the people he met. While in high school, he was running for homecoming king. He was actually obsessed with being nominated. Like, he really wanted it. And his mom was trying to support him, but also trying to set his expectations in a way that if he lost, he wouldn't take it too hard. Well, the day came. And while all the kids are being nominated... They're, like, giving their last pitches, their last little speeches. Could never be me. Zach, I say that as we did a live show. (laughs) (laughs) Zach grabs a microphone and, like, yells out on it, there should be a mandatory two-hour nap period. The crowd, like, let out a pity laugh, but you could sense that it was a pity laugh. And his mom, like, out in the audience, she just, like, yells out, go, Zach, like, trying to give him support oh, no but the damage was done like he saw it he was embarrassed he regretted it and he was nervous that this was gonna make it so that he was gonna lose you know and unfortunately he did lose and after that he soon became distracted in class and his grades plummeted it's noted by his mom that zach was a straight a student in all of his classes including geometry you know like the extra hard math classes <laughs> like the good Hard classes? Yeah. A student. He, uh, it's a senior year, and he's just fucking done. Talking about dropping out, moving in with his dad in Washington State. And although his mom expressed that she did not want him to go to his dad, whose name is Jack, because Jack is more of, like, a buddy-buddy friend figure. Mm-hmm. He's really not a father figure whatsoever. So halfway through his senior year, Zach dropped out, packed up his room, and moved to Washington with his dad. Just as suspected, Jack had planned out a cross-country road trip with Zach. They would hit all the party spot destinations along the way in Savannah, Georgia, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and then an extended stay in New Orleans, New Orleans, sorry, before heading back to Washington. So that is quite a bro, party trip. Yeah, and. They're both drinkers, like heavy drinkers. Savannah, Georgia and Fort Lauderdale were absolute, just a a rush, just fucking partying nonstop with his dad that he had not really been around since he was a young kid. And even when he was, it was like few and far between. But once they got to New Orleans. And you know, literally every bar that they walked into, he's like, this is my son. And then they're like, oh, I'm going to buy your son a drink. And also, he's only 18. But get this, I might as well just tell oh, you now, no. he is six foot ten with a size 17 shoe. Mm-hmm. <gasps> he's oh huge. God. He's a fucking giant. So most of the time, he's not even carded anyway, and that's how he gets away with having one of the drops later. But once they're in New Orleans, it was a bit of a letdown to Zach. They stayed in a rundown apartment in the Uptown section. It was so much of a letdown. Zach actually enrolled himself into the local high school. But again, he felt like the outsider there. He was on his, on the phone with his mom. I mean, Shock. 
he did feel like an outsider already from what happened at his other school. Also, he's six foot ten. Like he sticks out like a sore fucking thumb. At this point, I think at this point he's like maybe six six or so, because he still kind of has like that baby face and whatnot. He was talking to his mom about his appearance, and he was telling her how he's the only white kid there, so he just doesn't feel like he belongs. So, again, he drops out. As he gets closer to 18, he starts slimming out, losing that baby fat. Now he's fully six foot ten, size 17 shoe. He was starting to gain some confidence with himself as he started to get attention from the ladies. Ooh. I mean, he's six foot ten. Mm-hmm. Also, the men too. So you can't miss him. You can't miss him. So, ladies and men, he's bisexual, all as well. It's not something that he's like super open about, but it will come into play later, like drastically. Okay. He was impossible to miss. I literally have that in my notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and while frequenting the French Quarter bars, yes, again, he's underage. He started working a series of jobs on Bourbon Street. The main one being selling go cups. And this was literally just like a window and what seemingly looked like a wall. Like it doesn't really look like a building. It's just like a window and a wall. <laughs> uh-huh. And he would just hang out of it and yell in like a southern drawl, which he's from California. <laughs> There's no reason yeah. for him to have a southern drawl. Hey y'all, want a beer or a shot of Jack? <laughs> And oh the people Wait, you didn't mostly do it in a southern accent. No, bitch, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and the people, mostly women and gay men, would look over and just see like a shockingly tall, blonde hair, handsome man, and they would just float right on over. Yes, we do. <laughs> like, drink us up, baby. Mm-hmm. So working this window, Zach yelled out to a couple women that were walking by. Y'all want a shot of Jägermeister? Mm-mm. No, no, I do not. <laughs> but 28-year-old Lana and her friend were vacationing in New Orleans while taking time off as strippers in Dallas and Houston. Zach was immediately attracted to Lana and Lana right back to Zach. Three days later, they went on their first date. Lana recalls that, quote, he was just so gorgeous. <laughs> so cute. Oh. <laughs> oh. Lana was born in Florida, September 21st, 1969. At five days old, she was adopted by a Jewish family. Her father owned a car wash uh, company. So they lived a pretty good, like, solid middle-class lifestyle. Like, they were never really poor. They weren't, like, rich, but they lived a really good life. But Mm -hmm. then her dad suspiciously suspiciously, (laughs) (laughs) lost his business and their lifestyle just completely plummeted when she was nine. They moved back to Houston and Lana was very unhappy. She began rebelling against her Jewish upbringing and at 14 years old, I don't know how she did it, but at 14 she got out of her parents' custody and got her own apartment. Holy shit. Yeah. And then by her late teens, she was stripping in Houston clubs to make ends meet. However, she wasn't unhappy with this job. She actually really liked this field, and she often brought home, like, $2,000 a night. Holy shit. Like, she actually, she enjoyed this. And then when she did want to get away, her and her girlfriends, they would just go hit the road to the city that had topless bars. 
and they would just work a couple nights and go out and have fun. By her early 20s, Lana was super familiar with the network of strip clubs in the South and Northeast. <laughs> so much so, show, she could time her road trips. So much so that... <laughs> Is yours going? <laughs> well, good, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Technical difficulties. But uh, I was saying she could time her trips going to other places so that she would hit certain strip clubs during the busiest seasons. And that's how she made her vacations. Damn. I know. Like, it's honestly really badass and awesome. It's kind of yeah. like working for yourself. If you're really thinking about it, like, you're working for yourself. Yeah. Uh, so eventually she moved back to Dallas after escaping a brief, volatile marriage with a man she met at one of the clubs. She hated Dallas, though, and a friend suggested they road trip to New Orleans. The very first night there is when she met Zach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Eventually, Lana returned to Dallas, but Zach called her constantly, begging her to come back. So within a few weeks, she rented a temporary apartment right above the Big Daddy Strip Club on Bourbon Street. She would strip there a few nights a week and then hung out with Zach. And it's said that they were absolutely inseparable. And that's said by her. That was okay. until the end of 1996 when Zach told Lana that he was only 18. Oh. She had no idea. Considering he's selling alcohol, he's 6 foot 10. Yeah. Like... There's a lot of things that factor into that. I don't know how they. I don't know if he lied about his age, but at the very least, she didn't know he was 18. So she began to distance herself. But then, <laughs> but wait, there's more. <laughs> she found out she was pregnant. Oh, shock. Yep. She kept this news to herself for a few months, trying to decide if she really wanted to tell him or not. And unsurprisingly. Once she told him, he was very conflicted on how to handle this. <laughs> He's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> At this time, he was still living with his dad, by the way. And March 10th, 1997, he sat at a desk and wrote a letter to his mom. And that's where my book's going to come into play. So a lot of my information for this case, and I mean like 98% of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> Is from the book Shake the Devil Off by Ethan Brown. I linked it on uh, Facebook, or not Facebook. Um, I linked it on Instagram stories today, but you can find it on Amazon. It's not in Barnes & Noble or anything. Trust me, I've checked a million times, but you can get it on Amazon. And here is the letter he wrote to Mommy Dearest. She's not that bad, actually. <laughs> Mom. Well, the letter I never wanted to write to <laughs> so soon is upon me. This is a letter informing you of my unexpected venture into fatherhood. He's a real writer here. He's a bit dramatic. <laughs> there's there's a lot more to come. Oh, he God. journals. Oh, he journals. I've made quite a few errors in my past, and this is one of the biggest I've had to ever deal with. But this is what I get for being young and stupid. <laughs> The mother <laughs> was as surprised. I know, right? He writes, The mother was as surprised as myself, but not as regretful, for she wanted to have this child. After hours of pleading defenses such as, I'm too young, 
I don't want to father this child. And why not wait for someone who shares the same feelings as you? She still was unmoved. And much to my dismay. <laughs> she is a 28-year-old ex-stripper, as of now, who I regret ever meeting. I know this isn't the ideal mother, and neither of us wanted parenthood, which was why she was on the pill the entire time. But I guess science sometimes fails. That's no excuse, and I know, but it's the best I've got. I believe she will make a good mother who will love this child, but I just wish she could have waited for an older, more responsible person than myself to share this with. But now I'm stuck. I'm going to stay in New Orleans until the child is born and see it through part of its infancy, but in no way will I be its daddy. I could have chose the easy way out and ran from this, like I have all my other problems, but I couldn't do that to her. I have a responsibility to uphold, and damn it, I'm going to do it. I figure that if I want to play the gamble, then I need to be Jesus. willing to uphold the consequences. Well, I know this troubles you and hurts you, but there's, noth but there's nothing I can do about it. So give me a call to discuss it. I'd like your support. Uh, what is it? I like your support in this. So think it over before you talk to me. I know I've screwed up, and I don't need to. I don't need to hear it from you. Please understand. Love always, Zach. Oh my God. It's a very conflicting letter. He's like, on one hand, he's like, "Fuck, fuck, 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 fuck. I fucked up. I don't want to be with her. I hate this. I don't want a child. I have to do it though. I can't leave her." D what? <laughs> Pick one. Yeah, and sometimes it's just better if you just aren't. If you just aren't. Yeah, and you just don't. I feel like this letter is a very big representation for exactly how he's going to be throughout the years. He's going to be a very, I'm all about this. Uh, I don't know. Arms distance away. I'm all about it. Arms distance away. You'll see. Yikes, it's a lot of back and forth elasticity. Oh. Elastic girl. Elastic yeah. boy. Elastic boy. Until it breaks. I mean, like a rubber band will do that until it breaks. So, Oh, does it snap? So, <laughs> they spoke on the phone and she told Zach, quote, you have two options. Stay with the child and raise it or let it go and wonder what happens to his child. It's pretty, like, Cool. Okay, Mom. Reluctantly, he chose fatherhood. So, Lana, however, allowed him to be around, but also kept her distance. She put herself in his shoes, noting that she could not imagine being settled down with a baby at 18. When she went into labor on July 13, 1997, she did not inform Zach. She did not let Zach know that they were having a boy and that she named him Jackson and a few weeks after Jackson was born, she had a friend call while she was in the shower to let him know. And by the time she got out of the shower, Zach was there. Oof. Yeah. So at least, like, you know, he got the call and he was present. And once Zach met Jackson, it said by Lana that he instantly transformed into wanting to be a present father. Like, he was fixated. And at six weeks old, they ended up making their relationship official. Boyfriend and girlfriend. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, let's stay so, together because we had a kid. <laughs> we had a kid. I met I mean, it, if you did I that, like that's it. your own choice. But, like, I don't know. I don't think. If you don't actually. If it worked out person. for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I can only hope such 
beautiful, amazing things that that works out. But it's not for everyone. And Lana was more than capable and willing to raise Jackson by herself. I think it's weird that she named him Jackson because she his had name's it, J- Jack's son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His name, his dad's name's Jack. His name's Zach. Yeah. Jack's. It's weird. Yeah. So Zach was much more inclined to better his future for Jackson and Lana. He was working multiple party jobs. <laughs> they were all jobs, nonetheless, but like they were bar jobs where he could also drink and, you know. He would often disappear for months on end. Oops. Oh. Mm-hmm. He would, like, send money, but he would often disappear. And Lana let him know this was not going to fly. So to show that he was serious about their relationship, he moved Lana and Jackson into his own apartment. He proposed to Lana by asking her if she wanted health insurance. Hey, baby. Oh, romantic. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like health insurance. Cool, let's get married. Oh, what a what a guy. What a guy. So, October 10th, 1998. There they went, down the aisle. However, Lana found out she was pregnant. No. And when Zach told his mom, she said, quote, Shit, no, Zach, no. This is not what your life is supposed to be. Now you're really trapped. Oh, my God. Oh, large sigh. Yeah. Zach threw himself into work. Multiple jobs. This And they were still, like, party-esque jobs. And then his daughter, Lily, was born June 12th, 1999. Once Lily was born, (laughs) Zach was a devoted family man. He enrolled to get his GED the same year that... Lily was born, and then March uh, 29, 2000, he graduated. Two months later, May 12, 2000, he headed over to an army recruiting station, enlisted on an eight-year term with the intentions to give his wife and kids a better life. Okay. This would be the beginning downfall of who he would become. Mm-hmm. He was active duty in Iraq, and is it Kosovo? Sure. Yeah, okay. Active duty right before 9 11 and then immediately engulfed in it after 9 11. Yeah. One of his fellow soldiers and friends were killed and he was traumatized by this. His boots were also not the correct size, so he developed a severe, painful case of hammer toe. Oh, mm-hmm. no. Oh, oh I got details. So bad. By the summer of 2001, his hammer toe was debilitating and doctors recommended surgery. The surgery, which involved removing bone and cartilage at the joint to eliminate pressure on the toe, relieve pain, and ultimately straighten the toe back, was very painful, but seemingly successful, but it would later reveal that it wasn't. But for the time being, it was. Oh, God. So he's on medical leave for a couple of weeks, so he rushes home to see Lana and the kids. There, they fought about Lana's failure to follow up on military paperwork she needed to complete to make sure her and the kids could move with Zach to Germany. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. By August, they were all living together in Germany, however. And after that, like, after that argument, he ended up just, like, going down to the station and doing it all himself Mm -hmm. to make sure they could go. 
by 2003, they would, uh, by 2003, the world they knew was gone. A lot of the kids would often go and explore Germany before 9-11, and it was noted that a lot of the, like, military wives, they were too scared to really leave the base, but Lana, growing up the way she grew up, she didn't give a fuck. She hauled those kids wherever she wanted. They visited everything and anything, and they had a great time. Yeah, but then 9-11 hits, and it was very evident Mm -hmm. that they were going to go to war. Uh... Also, at this time, it was very far and few between that uh, they heard from Zach. Because, obviously, he's working. Now he's not, like, just dipping out partying. He's in fucking Iraq. Can't really call. (laughs) And then, you know, and then I can't, I can kind of imagine this because I know, I'm pretty sure we watched it, but I don't, like, fully remember it. March 17th, 2003, President Bush gave his televised address from the White House directly to Saddam Hussein and his sons telling them to turn themselves over whatever but you know Zach was sent to Baghdad where he would develop severe PTSD like mm-hmm. fucking severe July 28th Zach was promoted from specialist to sergeant and then giving devastating news that Lana had hepatitis C oh no it made it really difficult for her to care for the children by herself. She literally, she looked dead. Like, everyone around her just, they thought at any moment she could just drop dead. Like, she looked so ill. And she felt it, too. For a few days, Zach was allowed to visit Lana back in Germany. Lana was held by Zach. Like, while he's visiting, he's holding her while she's shaking and just completely delirious. At times, having a fever of 105. Oh, my God. Like, the fact that her brain didn't melt? Yeah. Excuse me? When he returned to Baghdad, her health took a turn for the worse. She needed, I think it's interferon? Interferon therapy? It's some type of thing to help her through this. And if she didn't have it, she was, like, 100% going to die. And even, even getting it, she could still have died. But the likelihood of her surviving with it was so much higher. Zach, unfortunately, was denied leave to be by her side as she literally battled this life-threatening disease. Mm-hmm. And the possibility that she could die while he was in Iraq really began to tear at his whole view of the military. But also, on the other hand, it was said in the books and like his journal and stuff that as much as he wanted to be with her, he also couldn't reconcile with the thought of leaving his brothers behind. Yep. Like, he was literally, what's the saying? A rock in a hard place? Yeah. I can't, I can't even imagine the turmoil going through your body. Like, not only your brain, but your physical body, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He ends up confiding in a friend, though, that he is fed up with the army. The same month that Zach lost his good friend and fellow soldier, Rachel... He was also mourning another death. Zach had adopted a young Iraqi boy who he called Rashid. Mm. His family owned a small shop across the street from one of the Iraqi police stations in Baghdad. Nearly every day, Rashid would bring Zach coke and bags of ice from his family store. Like, not 
of drugs coke that comes in later but this is coca-cola yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in return zach would teach him english and like play games with him Aww. one day in september insurgents blew up rashid's family shop while they were all in it they killed rashid and his entire family oh my god this attack was put on them by their own people for quote collaborating with americans and Zach completely and 100% blamed only himself. Of course he did. I know. And of course it's not his fucking fault. And, but he was, no. Like, the depression that he went into was, there. there's no coming back from his time no. in Iraq. No, he's, he is gone. No. Yeah. Once back to Germany with Lana and the kids in November 2003, Lana was thrilled to have Zach back. But she said that there was an emptiness to him. That his body was there, but he was not all there. Yeah. That the wives out. would get together. Mm-hmm. The wives would get together and talk about how much they loved their husbands, but that they know they had been changed forever. They were desensitized towards life and scarily racist. They hated Arabs and wished they were all dead. Lana could not live a life like this any longer and broke up with Zach. So they never divorced, but they did separate. Separate. Okay. Because, <laughs> like, Lana always and forever had a love for him. Yeah, that's the father of her But she children. could not any longer. Yeah. Exactly. She could no longer, like, actually be with him. After this, he began purposely failing... Uh, his health and fitness test. Eventually, he was generally discharged, losing all health benefits, and went back to New Orleans, New Orleans, sorry, with PTSD, depression, and whatever else brought on by his time in Iraq. And they just fucking threw him away. Yeah, that's what they do, or did. Sorry, like, they're changing. He was made into his. <laughs> he was made into a sergeant. Like he was there for his brothers. He back. He never had anything on his record like he showed up he was on time like he was a soldier and then he had fucking ptsd his wife semi left him like it's not her fault for leaving him by any means but like he had shit going on and you just threw him away yeah he's not a fucking puppet like he is a human Ugh. American military. When he returned home, I know. When he returned home, Lana informed him that she was seeing someone. She wanted to help him transition into civilization, so she had him come live with her and the kids in her apartment. So she's doing everything she can. It's really nice of her, honestly. It really, she's a really good person, and a lot of the quotes and stuff in the book that I mentioned is like her quotes. She speaks truth about him but also highly. Yeah. Sometimes the truth, like hearing truth about people who have died, which we will get into about Addie Hall, who I'm about to get into now. Mm -hmm. It sounds very, it, it, it seems like it's in distaste, but at the same time, like shitty people are killed too. Yeah. You know, everybody, it kind of goes back to Jody Arias. Like Travis Alexander wasn't a peach. Yeah. But obviously none of these people deserve what they get. Right. But yeah. So in spring of 2005, Zach found a bartending job at a place called Hogs Bar. 
He was given the graveyard shift from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. It was a highly lucrative position, as this was the place all the nearby clubs and strip clubs would come to when they closed. Yeah. And it was mostly gay men, trans men, like, all types of people. And like I said earlier, he's, he's he thrived in this environment. He loved all people. Like, Zach liked all people. And while working at Hogs Bar, he didn't get, like, too much care to women's attention he was kind of i think he was just he was really fucking depressed and he didn't have lana he just really didn't care however women loved him and they would go bounds and leaps to fucking try to get his attention Mm -hmm. and he just wouldn't give them the time of day that was (laughs) Until one girl showed a total disinterest in him. Oh, the one that didn't pay attention. <laughs> that's how you get him. Her name was Adrian Hall, but she goes by Addie, so that's what we'll call her. Addie was 29 years old and had a very low opinion on Hogs Bar and Zach. Because <laughs> she, like, she knew all the girls just swooned over him. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, fucking, just literally shut up. Like, go shove your head in a toilet. This is like, like don't want to hear about crazy it. Crazy <laughs> Stupid Love, where everyone's swooning over Ryan Gosling, and Emma's just like, no. <laughs> no. And then she gets him. Seriously? It's like your Photoshop. Okay. Uh, now I'm going to have to watch that. Mm-hmm. Zach was instantly attracted to Addie. Addie was a poet, a seamstress, and a dancer. She was said to be very, very very creative, like super creative, always doing something, talented as fuck. She had what people called wild eyes, okay, dirty blonde hair, and was also described as free spirited and had a feisty temper. And oh boy, does she! <laughs> Addie worked the shift right after Zach was off, so he would often just stay a little bit longer, have a drink, try to work his way into Addie's circle. And eventually, they started dating. Shock. <laughs> it's literally like a movie. Yeah, it is. A Lifetime movie. Very much. I'm actually shocked that there's not a movie. So, Addie did not have an easy childhood. She was victim to sexual abuse as a, at a really young age. She was in and out of really abusive relationships and also was bipolar but unmedicated. Addie was living in North Carolina during all of this, and once she moved to New Orleans for a fresh start, she started to find herself. However, her friends did say she could be very volatile. There's like a few words in this book that are used a lot, and volatile is one of them. Okay. (laughs) They loved her dearly, and they understood her outbursts and her inner child and, like, unmedicated bipolar was what was screaming out and like they understood all of this but they still loved her but it's still a factor in this case yeah i mean unfortunately yeah it it is what it is and the ptsd and everything that's going to be combined and talked about if this concoction wasn't all put in the same cauldron they probably would have just Made it out separately, Mm -hmm. eventually. But this potion was already concocted. Mm -hmm. Concocting. (laughs) 
swirling around in the so, cauldron. Mm-hmm. Addie was a very heavy drinker, and she was not a fun person to be around when drunk. Usually people try to avoid her. She was very abusive, very angry, but when she was sober, she was the nicest, most complete opposite person ever. Zach mm-hmm. felt he could handle her, though, and the two would stay out all night, all the time, drinking, partying, drugs, sex, fucking rock and roll 100% of the time. <laughs> to me, like, Zach's already gone through fucking Iraq, post 9-11. I feel like he heard stories and he was like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, I was in Iraq. (laughs) Fuck off. Mm -hmm. And what do you say after that? You're like, oh, okay. You do you, boo. Yeah. (laughs) A few months into this lifestyle, a little thing called Hurricane Tortilla, I mean, Katrina, (laughs) was about to hit. (laughs) Sorry, I could not. I'm sure most people know about Hurricane Katrina, but I'm starting to realize that we're kind of hitting that age where people who are listening may not know this shit. Could have, you know, not been alive during that time. Could have not been alive, which is insane to me. Yeah. (laughs) But just for those people, and so that we can kind of know the severity of it, even if for those who do know about it, but kind of lost some knowledge on it, Hurricane Katrina was a tropical cyclone. Cyclone? Cyclone. Cyclone. (laughs) (laughs) I literally could not say that word. It struck southeastern United States in late August 2005. This hurricane, in its aftermath, claimed more than 1,800 lives, and it ranked as the costliest natural disaster in U.S. history. It went from August 23, 2005 to August 31, 2005, it's estimated that 80% of New Orleans was underwater by August 30th. And the winds exceeded 170 miles per hour. Yeah. Hurricanes kill people. A fucking like, fuck. 80%. Yeah, 80%. It was it was completely I, devastating. The yeah. whole place of New Orleans was underwater and people were dead left and right needing refuge in other states and other countries. I mean, it was insane. Yep. And we'll get on on who comes in to save, or not save, but like who comes in to help them while somebody else has PTSD. So, Zach did not have any interest in evacuating. I mean, I feel like he, like, again, bitch, I'm in, I was in He's war. He's like, I was in the trenches. I'm not, I'm not leaving for some wind. This is some exactly. fucking wind and water. Have you ever been in a sandstorm? Wind and, exactly. <laughs> He's like, we begged for wind and water. All we got was sand. I dodged bullets. Like, he's like, what? He's like, no. A little bit of rain. A little bit of rain. A little bit of of a drizzle. And then you're like, like, no. He was not about to leave. That's that's not how it's gonna be. But also, Addie didn't want to leave either. And Lana, who hasn't even met Addie yet but knows about her, was like, please come with us, Zach. Come with us and your kids. You can bring Addie as well. Mm-hmm. And he was just like, no. We're good. <laughs> okay. All right. Fortunately, though, the area that Zach and Addie were at, it wasn't hit as bad. They still lost power and they were without, like, normal everyday things. But they were thriving. Okay. 
it's very uh, post-apocalyptic. The people who either survive and thrive or the people who are like, oh, fuck me. <laughs> they actually became ringleaders of this little community. They would break into, and I like, I kind of put quotes around break into because this is very, it's post-apocalyptic if you really think about it. They're, they're needing to survive. Mm-hmm. So they got to break into stores to get food, but they would also break into like bars and stuff to get alcohol. <laughs> The necessities. I mean, what else are you going to do? Exactly. <laughs> uh, you had to remember they were kind of oblivious as well to, like, the true destruction that was happening because they don't have electricity. They don't have the news telling them what's happening a few miles away. They don't have people coming up and letting them know. Mm. Like, they're just doing their thing. And on top of that, Zach did not contact Lana or the kids one time. Lana literally thought Zach and Addie were dead. Now, that's not to say he didn't try, because who knows how easy it was to try. However, mm-hmm. once things started to settle down, news reporters and media was coming in. Zach and Addie were seen as symbols of the survivor community and literally, like, in the newspaper, labeled the king and queen of Hurricane Katrina. No way. Now think about it. Does that feel a little full circle? It does, because he wanted to be homecoming king. Exactly. So it makes you wonder, like, did he kind of feel that spotlight moment now? Did he get that little bit of, you did it? What's the, this gesture, little... Like on the on the chin, chin. like, yeah, like a little little nod. You did it, kid. (laughs) Oh my god, I just looked it up so I could see the newspaper. Yeah, I know. (laughs) That's how you get really excited. (laughs) Their photo was in the paper, and the media really pushed that they were like symbols, but they were the reason other people survived, supposedly. And this is how Lana found out that they were alive. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Not a call. Just randomly looking at the newspaper, and there's her ex-husband and Addie. <laughs> and we'll have the photos posted on Instagram, obviously. That is So, obviously, insane. this is not how life was going to be for, like, now on. Like, shit had to go back to normal. The electricity came back and New Orleans was starting to gain their people back. And the rebuilding for a normal life was beginning. Zach and Addie, though, they were not about things going back to normal. They wanted to stay king and queen and live the lifestyle that they were now enjoying and thriving. It was more so Addie that would look at the people who evacuated as less than. As if, like, they abandoned their ship And she was just, like, judging the absolute shit out of them and was not afraid to, like, tell them. Yeah. I guess. And obviously, Zach would do it as well, but it was kind of instigated a lot more by Addie. Like, she had a a very large disgust for them. She had some sort of complex about it where she's like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's very weird. She let it get the power go to her head. No, she... 
She did. She literally, she resented them. And it's, it's said that she would say that they were not true New Orleans people. Because they evacuated. <laughs> oh, yeah. They just wanted to survive. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Okay. None of this was good for the relationship. And to make matters absolutely worse, the military is who came in to help save the day. Yeah. This is only bad for Zach, who has severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. And he was being triggered left and right. They were using drugs and alcohol every single day. They were pretty much never sober. Mm-hmm. Eventually, though, Zach calls Lana, finally, and asks when he can see the kids. And it's just like, Ex- excuse me? You want to see the kids? You have not called? We saw you in the newspaper? Like, you just you can't come in and out. No, you get either in or you're out. Exactly. So, eventually, though, being who she is, she agrees to meet up with him alone. Like, just her. She's not going to bring the kids yet. And she also wants to meet Addie because if things go well, then she needs to know that who Addie is. She needs to know who the woman is that her kids are going to be around. Yeah. The kids are five and seven, by the way. Okay. Like, they're old enough to know things. Yeah. And notice things. They all meet, and Lana agreed that Zach and Addie could have the kids every other weekend. Addie was excited to be in Jackson and Lily's life, to be a stepmom for them. She was excited for it but then her truer self began to show she began resenting lana because she was the one that always called the shots Mm -hmm. because ma'am they're not your kids her children she gets to do that she gets to do that and also the dad is in and out he's hot and he's cold he's He's up and he's down like he's katie perry literally (laughs) (laughs) like you You were not in control here, and she did not like that. And eventually, instead of being the loving, present stepmom that she wanted to be, she became very cold towards the kids. Never, like, physically hurt them, but definitely emotionally hurt them because she started off like, love you, to fuck you. And whenever they were around, she would just go out and party. And literally, like, would come home, ask crack of dawn, leave again, and go party. What a stellar person. Mm-hmm. And this was not something that Zach would just allow to happen. They would get into huge fights. Verbal and physical mm-hmm. fights. It was said by people around Zach that he would be covered in bruises and scratches after fights like this happened. And Addie would also have wounds herself. And it was noted, though, I hate, like, this is where I was saying earlier, where it's like, Sometimes the facts of a case, they're really fucking sucky because of what happens to the person, but this is still truth. So, Addie's wounds were more so brought on by Zach trying to stop Mm -hmm. her. Addie's barely over five feet tall. Like, she is teeny tiny, especially compared to Zach at six foot Mm ten. And... She would go into these ravaged like states and he would have to like physically hold her down, push her away. Like she would have like like grabbing grabbing hand marks where like on her arms or he was like trying to keep her away. 
I'm sure there was moments where he lost it as well, especially for what happens later. There's no, I don't feel like there's any way that he was fucking a saint. Right. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? But from what bystanders and people who saw after these things happen and also who knew Addie very well, her injuries were more so from him trying to stop her and just like, like, like stray jack at her almost, yeah. you know, yeah. like, but with his body. <laughs> Uh, eventually, though, after these fights, he, he started to venture out and he wasn't as into the relationship as he was before. They always have this weird, volatile love for each other, but with his kids being in the picture and how she was acting and like all these fights, he went out one night and he ended up cheating on her with a man. Addie found out she was not mad that he cheated. She was mad that he cheated on her with a man. She was extremely homophobic towards Zach, called him every name you possibly can under the sun. Because of this, she took Zach's phone and contacted every single person in his phone and told them that he had AIDS. Oh, my God. Mm hmm. And for, like, people who don't know or aren't aware or educated in it, this time, even nowadays, people still aren't very educated on AIDS. But during this time was still, like, the very heightened time of AIDS is only a gay disease, quotes, Mm -hmm. which isn't true. So we're going to educate ourselves right now. This isn't true. Not true. (laughs) But at this time, if you were to be like, hey, I have AIDS especially as a man, it was automatic. Oh, you're gay. Mm -hmm. So essentially she just outed him to everyone. It's a dick move. She's a, see you next Tuesday. (laughs) RIP. So finally, after the, after they break up, Addie wanted to get back together. Like, this was the final straw. Finally fucking done. I didn't want to get back together. And so does Zach. Like I said, they still have this strange... Like, they're addicted to each That's other. That's called toxic love. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are the definition of can't live with them, can't live without mm-hmm. them. Like, they just, like, need each other. That's because a narcissist always needs their, you know, their little prey. Yeah. But I think it also goes both ways in a sense, too. Yeah, they're both doing which it. Which is even, like, worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what the bipolar Unfortunately, does, Unfortunately, though. Like, multiple. And get this. Mm-hmm. Addie has a plan. Oh. She has a plan. She could, in fact, live without Zach. You see, she told Zach they needed an apartment, a new apartment to start fresh, that they would lease it together. So they signed the paperwork. And this is the apartment that's above the Voodoo Spiritual Temple mm-hmm. <laughs> on 826 North Rampart Street. They signed it. And then the next day, Addie goes to the landlord and she's like, hey, uh, Zach's not actually moving in. He's not going to be part of this. You can take him off the lease. Um, no. Yeah. And Zach is the one who put their first two months rent down. 
Oh my god. And on top of that, the landlord's name's Leo, by the way. He'll come into play later. On top of that, this is after Hurricane Katrina. So his need for tenants and also his like paperwork for it is a little more lenient mm-hmm. than it used to be. So it was really easy for Addy to get his name off of it and just for like Leo's stressed, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's like, I, I had no reason not to trust her. And Zach ends up calling Leo and asked if his name was on the lease or if Addy had just signed a six month lease without Zach. He says yes, and Zach replies that he is screwed because Addy is kicking him out now. Leo rushes over to the apartment and finds Zach and Addy in the stairwell arguing. Mm-hmm. Addie yells, like, almost immediately to Leo, who she barely knows, he cheated on me with a man. Mother bitch. And, like, Leo notes, like, why would you be so quick to, like, tell me that? Yeah. Why Why am I being involved in this? And he literally tells him, like, I don't, I don't want to be involved in drama. Mm-mm. So he leaves. Yeah. He's like, I'm not fucking about this. Uh, before he left, though, Addie did tell Leo, she, like, to calm him down a little bit, I guess, that she was going to take care of the apartment, that she was a good tenant, and whatever. And he was just like, I don't want to fucking be a part of this. And he left while still hearing them argue in the back. What time are you at? On top of being pissed with Addie's actions, Zach was supposed to have the kids the following weekend. And Lana's dad, even with his distaste of Zach... He would never downplay his love for his kids. He believed that losing the apartment absolutely destroyed him. Zach had finally snapped. Thursday, October 5th, 2006, at 1 a.m., Zach strangled Addie to death. Oh. And now's where you're going to hear the beautiful pages of this book. Where I'm going to read actual journals from, like, journal entries from Zach. Zach wrote in Addie's journal. It's not even his journal. It's Addie's journal. But he wrote in it. I tried to, or, whoa. (laughs) Sorry. She tried to kick me out. Then would not shut the fuck up. So I very calmly strangled her. It was very quick. Oh my god. After sexually defiling the body a few times, I was posed with the question of how to dispose of a corpse. Yeah, you heard that right. He had sex with her body a few times. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. He then drunkenly fell asleep next to her body and woke up at 6 a.m. for his morning shift. Ah. Uh, mm-mm. Mm-hmm. Zach was unshaven and quiet and smoking a cigarette. Capriccio, who's his coworker slash good friend, remembers. So I said, what happened? He looked at me and said, me and Addie split up, man. We had a real falling out. She packed her bags, took some of my money, and went back home to North Carolina. Capriccio wondered if Zach had killed Addie. He says that Zach was dark and downcast in the days before the murder and that he simply had, quote, gotten a bad vibe from him oh. but he dismissed this idea because it was quote not something you can even comprehend a friend doing 
Also, Zach's story about Addie's departure seemed plausible because Addie had threatened to leave the French Quarter several times in the past. Mm. I love the sound of a book turning pages. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, quote, it wasn't too hard to comprehend that she would do something like that. And she did everything spur the moment. She was all about rash things. Mm. Again, it's a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. Let's see. When Zach arrived back at the apartment just after 9 o'clock that Thursday, he began to slowly and methodically clean up the crime scene. First, he dragged Addie's corpse into the tiny bathroom and started to dismember her. I came home, moved the body to the tub, got a saw, and hacked off her feet, hands, and a head, he wrote in the journal. Casually. <laughs> he also wrote, put her head in the oven after giving it an awful haircut. Put her hands and feet in the water on the range. Oh my god. Yeah. Zach's bathroom light remained on even after he became too exhausted to continue working on Addie's body and went to bed. Quote, I got drunker, Zach wrote in Addie's journal, and some hours later turned off the stove, filled the tub with water, and passed out. I was to be off all weekend, so I had plenty of time to work, but due to laziness, spent most of that time coked up in various bars with different girls. This time, not Coca-Cola. Actual Coke. Yeah. Sunday afternoon, Zach remembered that he'd agreed to take Jackson and Lily for the weekend. So he called Lana and asked her to bring the kids by his work. Lana agreed. He ended up giving Lana $600 that he owed for child support and then asked Lana if he could have the kids next weekend after he, quote, fixed up the place. Mm. Lana was skeptical as she knew how Addie felt about the kids but Zach assured her that Addie would not be staying in the apartment. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Sus. Yeah. The kids said goodbye to their dad, and they were super excited when Lana told them that they would be going back the following weekend, and they left to go home. Zach then returned home. Sunday night, Zach wrote, I sawed off the rest of the legs and arms and put them in a roasting pans, stuck them in the oven, and passed out. I came to seven hours later with an awful smell emanating from the kitchen. I turned off the oven and went back to work on Monday. This would be the last day I'd work. The face you have. It's so nasty. Sorry, it's, it's not funny. Mm-hmm. Three days after he had killed her, when Zach returned home, the sight of Addie's rotting, dismembered corpse struck and overcame him with horror and self-hatred. He wrote, I scared myself not by the action of strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, but by my entire lack of remorse. So, I decided to quit my job, spend the $1,500 in cash I had, and kill myself. Okay. He went down a rabbit hole of alcohol, drugs, sex workers, anything and anything that you can think of that you would, I guess, spend your last few days on Earth, I guess, doing. If you're into that, I guess. If you're into that and you might have just dismembered and hor horribly, horrifyingly killed your girlfriend. 
he met up with Capriccio and they partied. Although he could sense something was very different about Zach, he didn't push too much. Zach was telling everyone that he was going on a trip to see the Grand Canyon the night that they were all partying. Mm-hmm. And the next morning, he woke up on Capriccio's couch, shook his hand tightly, he said, and announced, I'm going on vacation. See you later. Mm-hmm. No. Zach headed home where Addie's dismembered body is fucking everywhere. And he begins setting up for him to go, quote, on vacation. Let's right. go to a different page. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so to set up for this vacation, he inflicted 28 cigarette burns all over his body, one for each year of his life. In the suicide note that he furiously scrawled into the pages of Addie's diary, it's like very, like the, the handwriting of it, I guess. It wasn't like his normal handwriting. Like you mm-hmm. could tell, like it just, he was, he was not all there. He recalled his final head, heady days. What, Ethan Brown? <laughs> <laughs> he described his final days partying with Capriccio. He wrote, good food, good drugs, good strippers. Had a fantastic time living out my days. Fuck it all and fucking no regrets. Which is a quote from a Metallica song. That's right. Uh, he then made a list on this paper of his life failures. Which were friends, jobs, military, marriage, and love. He's nothing but theatrical, okay? Yeah. <laughs> At the bottom of the note, he provided kind of like a, like a challenge, so to say, for the cops and possibly journalists, Ethan Brown thinks. And it said, it's just about time now. The only numbers left are friends and family members, so go to work. Zach spray painted Lana's phone number on the wall above the bathtub and in reference to Addie, wrote on the wall above her... I love her. On the living room wall. Early in the afternoon on Tuesday, October 17th, Zach stopped by Squirrel's apartment as another one of his good friends. Mm -hmm. He wanted to see if he could get him out to party one last time, but Squirrel was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So Zach walked to the Omni Royal at 621 St. Louis Street, rode Mm -hmm. the elevator to the La Rive... Riveria? Riviera. (laughs) Rooftop pool bar. Spent a long afternoon having drinks by the pool. And then at 8.30pm, jumped off the roof. Holy shit. Yep. So, his suicide note. This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol car to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, in a full signed confession from myself, Zach Bowen. I scared myself, not by the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years, and then desecrating her body, but my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible of a person I am. Ask anyone. And decided to quit my jobs and spend the $1,500 cash I had being 
be being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends, and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family. So that, that'll explain the shock. And I had a fantastic time living out my days. It's just about time now. Jeez. Mm -hmm. I don't like so it. We're gonna be, I know. I have a little bit more. The apartment was a mess. NOPD detective Tom Morovich remembers. There was moving boxes and junk and crap just everywhere. And there were beer cans all over the coffee table to the point where you couldn't see the table. It looked like people who lived there just moved out and had it unpacked. There appeared to be no blood anywhere on the apartment's floor, nor was there any smell from Addie's corpse, which had been stored in the kitchen for nearly two weeks. We noticed that the window air conditioning unit was on and set real low, Tom remembers. So it was very cold. That's what helped hide the smell. Tom saw Zach's messages on the walls in the black spray paint. I'm a total failure. Please help me stop the pain. I love her. Please call my wife. Side note, this was not me reading right now. The please stop the pain was written right above the bed. And that's where he slept every night. Mm -hmm. With also Addie's body everywhere. And that's like the first thing he would see every morning and the last thing he would see every morning. Yeah. Yeah. Tom explains, uh, oof, her head was in the pot and her torso was wrapped up in a garbage bag in the refrigerator. At one point, the cops had to exit the apartment because detectives from the homicide department didn't want anything contaminated. Also, I couldn't conceive of what had happened there. In 10 years in law enforcement, I had never seen anything that disturbing. Now, Jeez. I believe Addie and Zach fucking had a volatile love for one another. And, like, I, I had to think this sentence out when I wrote it, and I had some help from one of my sources that'll be listed. I added some things that I feel in my heart. But I think the PTSD, the lies, the cheating, the unmedicated mental illnesses... Drugs, alcohol, it set their relationship onto the deadly path that it was going to end up on. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was nothing else to it. Like it was a recipe for destruction. It was it, yes. Yeah. There was no way around it between the both of them, unless they moved like states away from one another. Like I said earlier, this cauldron concoction was. A Bruin. <laughs> yeah. And it was poison. Yes, it was. Two little They're facts. Mean people. Both of them are mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Two facts. Ahead. The building is currently being leased by another voodoo priestess who has turned it into a museum of the paranormal with tours of the apartment. No way. I want to go. <laughs> That's gross. I want to go. She was dismembered there. I know. I want to go. You're a freak. I know. <laughs> we balance each other. Okay. 
also, I guess there's like three little facts. There's this whole, because people want so much more to the story. Uh-huh. And there's this whole thing that the voodoo priestess has something to do with it. Like, was there something that happened? You know. But no. If you look into voodoo priestess, it's, from what I've read, it's kind of similar to Wicca. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's love and acceptance. Like, if you put a bad omen or something on someone it's going to come back to you tenfold like it's not there to harness fucking devils and demons that's not what it's about so no he had fucking ptsd and she had undiagnosed bipolar they were two very angry volatile people that should not have crossed paths Mm -hmm. it's not fucking voodoo people (laughs) This makes me mad. Like, let people have things. It's like, what is it? The the Book of Satan. It's not about the devil. Oh, Satanism. Yeah, it's not. But, yeah. Get it's your shit straight. Leaving people alone. <laughs> exactly. Like, like leave, leave them alone. Yeah. Now, this one, I was like, holy fucking shit. This is insane. GhostCityTours.com is where I got this. In a documentary about Zach and Addie as well as other interviews for television and online media, brought to light a close friend of Zach and Addie's, Margaret Sanchez. Her tears of devastation at the loss of her, quote, best friends is unnerving, especially now. Margaret pleaded guilty and was convicted in the 2012 death and dismemberment of Jaron Lockhart, a Bourbon Street dancer and young mother. Margaret and her boyfriend, who she knew as Alan, his real name was Terry, at the time, went to Bourbon Street's Gentleman's Club and lured Jaron with the promise of a hefty paycheck for a private performance. They took her to their home, stabbed her in the chest, cut her up, and threw her over a bridge, resulting in Jaron's remains washing up on several different Mississippi Gulf Coast beaches. Just six days later, on June 12th, the couple was arrested at a traffic stop near their home. When Sanchez was interviewed... She said she was aware of the dancer's demise since it was broadcasted on the local news, not because she fucking did it. Mm -hmm. She related that it was similar to how her best friend died and said, quote, I felt so bad for her family because I had a friend. My friend was Addie Hall. She was cut up and she was cooked and her boyfriend jumped off a hotel. What the fuck? What the shit, man? Yeah. (laughs) So she's in jail as well. Yeah. Okay. That good. Yeah. Insane. What was the point? What was the point? Why I'm sure there's that? way more to that. Ca- That's probably a whole nother case that I just told in 30 seconds. But the fact that she is connected with Addie and like, same thing. What? What? Yeah. That's my case. Humans are dumb. Thanks, I hated it. Humans are dumb. <laughs> Do you want to hear a fun fact? No, a shitty fact. A shitty fact. Well, this is from a, a book that Michaela got me. 1001 Facts That Will Scare the Shit Out of You. Yes. Um, <laughs> this is a fact. <laughs> a UK woman claims that she was fired from her job in 2007 for chronic flatulence. <laughs> the unnamed woman oh. who suffers from irritable bowel syndrome says she was frequently <laughs> harassed and taunted about her problem by coworkers before being terminated. Yeah. She literally was fired for farting. 
<laughs> okay, we're only gonna have shitty facts for now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty great. <laughs> All right, side is off. <laughs> okay, thanks so much for listening to that awful, awful fucking story. Hey, this was one of my like quote favorite cases. This has been okay. on my list for well over a year, so I'm happy well, I finally did it. You're a freak. Anyway, <laughs> uh, be sure to keep up with, with us on Instagram uh, at Bloodbath Podcast, all of and all of our other social medias, and we'll catch you next week. Um, but wait, there's more. Bye. 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 Bye.